kayo. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because he, honestly, you just don't want to know what he can't do. <laughs> Something this morning, he wanted. I, I said, "Why don't you do it?" I don't know how to do it. He goes, "Oh, for goodness sake!" All right. Let's put the proper one up now. <laughs> now this morning, you, are you all excited? Yeah. Good. I'm glad because um, I'm going to. Uh, I've got a really exciting sermon. Actually, it's really contentious and controversial. Who loves controversy? <laughs> I'm not sure. Actually, all right. Um, and I just want to reassure you, when I put a sermon together, it's usually because God is either hammering me about it at the time or he has hammered me about it over a long period of time. And this is more about, you know, me coming to grips with things. And if it happens to relate to you, that's lovely. I'm not sitting here necessarily hammering you, but I might. All right. Now, I like to be right. I usually am right, except for when I'm wrong. But I like to be right, and I definitely don't like to be wrong. Is there anybody here that relates to that? Not a one. Oh, I will stop right now. Um, I don't like to be wrong, but when I have to apologise, I like it to be my idea. I don't like somebody to tell me that I'm wrong and that I should apologise. I like to come up with that myself. Is there anybody that relates to that yet? Still nobody. Goodness me, you're a bunch of wonderful people. I suspect that there are some people that are like that, that you like to be right. In fact, I think that we live in a society where we have an obsession and an addiction to being right. I don't like to be wrong. I like to know the answers. I don't want somebody coming up to me and asking me a question and me not to know the answer. I'm just wondering if anybody else relates to this. You're all looking very pierced down there. But what is my motivation? Now, I could justify this because actually it's really quite a worrying trend, this obsession with always having to be right. It's a bit worrying. And, uh, but then I could justify it by sort of saying, well, what's my motivation? Well, my motivation is I just, I just want to do what's right before God, you know. It's because I love God. Is it? Or is it because I don't like to look bad? And I don't like to be found out as being a weak person or that I don't know everything. I don't know. I have to look at my motivation sometimes. It's a bit awkward, you know, for somebody who likes to be right all the time. And then I, and then I come to the point where I've got a person in my family who's, who's a very smart person who's always coming up with a question or um, a reason why what I think might not be right. And I don't want to hear what that person has to say. It's like, la, 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 la. It's too awkward. I don't want to know. But unfortunately, the words are already out and I have to consider it. Now, look, I began to think about this whole concept of being right and about how society in general likes to be right and likes to make a stand. And I thought about what happens and what we are seeing in society today. Now, I want you to imagine this room for a minute. If we cleared all the chairs out and we all had to stand, you know, at the front here, that we would, and I would designate corners. Now, this is the corner th that I would designate, so listen carefully. Over in that corner over there is where the right-wing conservative fundamentalists would stand, right? 
over in this corner over here is where the left-wing um, secular liberalists would stand, right? Now, over in that corner, the back corner, is where you would stand if you go, oh, goodness, I'm not quite sure I, I hear what that says and I hear what that says. I'm not quite sure, but I just want to do the right thing. So you'd go and stand in that corner. And over in this corner, uh, the people go to stand who say, when's the footy on and has somebody ordered the pizza? And then I thought to myself, if we divided the room up like that, I wrote down a list in my notebook of 22 contentious issues that I could think of. After I wrote the list, I thought of probably another eight or nine. I didn't write them down. So about 30 contentious issues. About half of them were sort of like theological, that to, to, to do with the church and religion. And about half of them were social. But they were all contentious. And if I said any of them... You know, and then I said, right, I'm going to call out an issue and I want you to go to a corner, right? And it would be surprising to see what happens. Now, can we go back to that map, um, Adrian? Can you see that up there? Right, there's a, there's a thing. Because what happens in society today with issues, and unfortunately, I'm sure there's more than 30 contentious issues, but unfortunately with contentious issues, we, we tend to take a position, and what happens is, see the piece in the middle, the designated war zone, is it, these issues become polarised very quickly. It's not like, let's discuss it. It's like, we're in a corner, we've got our dukes up and we're ready to fight. And we defend the position, whichever position we happen to be in, hotly. And sometimes with aggression and sometimes with violence and sometimes with angry words. And you know where it gets played out a lot? It gets played out on social media. Who's ever seen it on social media? Who's ever been, I'd say brave enough, but I might say stupid enough to engage in social media like that? Anybody? You did. You do. Goodness, good luck to you. I've done it once or twice and then regretted it severely afterwards because it gets really quite ugly. Um, and the, the war zone in the middle... And the position, and we have to be right. We have to be right. They, they don't understand, or they don't understand. And then, you, you know, there's this... Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Please give me a wave. Please, please, please. Good, good. I'm, so what happens, sometimes I stand over in that corner and chew my nails with a great deal of angst because I hear what's over there and I hear what's over there and I'm thinking, oh, goodness, what is the right thing to do? And then when that gets too much for me, I go over to this corner and say... When's the game on? Who's ordered the pizza? Because you know what? That's easier. <laughs> Does anybody live over here? <laughs> A couple of people. <laughs> so you might say to yourself, what's on that list? Do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> I wouldn't say it if you paid me um, because I didn't want to say a fart here this morning. So um, I'm not going to tell you what's on the list. Um, oh, there's one. Should women preach in church? Too late. It's already done. Okay. Next slide. You know what? There are a lot of issues in the world today. And there are a lot of social justice things going on. We engage in some of the social justice things here in this church sometimes. But, you know, there are a lot of issues that are brought up they are contentious, they polarise quickly, people get in corners and they get their weapons out really quick. 
And it's really sad because there is stuff to be talked about. They are issues. There are problems. We do need to talk about it. And taking to a corner and taking a position, it, it doesn't seem to be healthy. And, and so the, the criticism usually comes against the church, against Christian people. You're self-righteous and judgmental. But you know what? It's probably true. Um, you know what? Some of the most self-righteous people I've ever met are not in the Christian corner or not in the fundamentalist corner, I should say, because let's, point, let's, let's just say straight out, just because you're right-wing fundamentalist doesn't necessarily mean that that's the Christian corner because it's not always the right... Well, what am I saying? I'm saying that self-righteousness is not a Christian problem. It is a human problem. I've seen people who are on a, on a, a totally non-Christian social justice bent and are totally self-righteous and are totally judgmental of anybody who doesn't subscribe to the position that they stand in. So even the people that stand in the corner and say, oh, goodness, I'm not really sure. There's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm not really sure. You know, people are angry at them because they should make a decision and join a team. But, you know, with social issues and even with theological issues, it's not about joining a team. Is it? Is that the way that God asks us to save the world? Is that, oh, we'll preach the gospel. Is that how God asks us to preach the gospel? Join a team. Take a position. Take up your weapons. Let's fight. Nobody seems really keen about fighting. You know, um, in biblical Hebrew culture, I find this very interesting, actually. The elders used to meet at the gates, and they used to sit and they used to talk about the scriptures and they weren't afraid of questions questions actually were something that were a a part of the culture b they were exciting and encouraged in fact jesus you would find whenever the pharisees would ask him something he'd answer with a question there were always questions the pharisees would ask him and jesus would answer with a question there was questions all the time questions are not a scary thing though i have to admit that back in the day when I was um, growing up in church, you didn't question anything. Who else is in that generation? Just, this is how it is. Do as you're told and don't ask questions. Anybody? And now I live in a culture where we are taught as teachers that we must teach the children to ask questions. Critical thinking, it's called. So the children must ask questions. So you're, you're looking at a bunch of kids that are going... You know, but why? That doesn't seem right. Let's, and, and you're going, don't ask questions because we're scared of questions because we were taught that you just had to do what you were told. Where did that come from? How did that happen? You know, back in the day as Christianity, like, like I say, back in the, the Hebrew time, questions were encouraged and they, they were inspired quite questions because then they'd get the scriptures out and then they'd begin to chew it over and then they'd begin to pull it apart and then they'd look at, at this and that, that and, and, they'd, and they believed, see the jewel up there, they believed... That, um, that the word of God, the scripture, was like a jewel or like a, a crystal. It depended how the light shone on the crystal or the jewel as to what color would be shown. They believed that the scripture could have any number of meanings depending on how God revealed it to you. right? And so they never tired of talking about the scripture. They talked about it all the time. It was, it was just the fun thing to do, to talk. Of course, oh, I won't say that was as contentious issue. I was going to say the women weren't there, but anyway, that's a contentious issue. We'll let it put that over in the football corner. Um, 
talk about that today. But they did talk about the scripture all the time and they examined it. Now, what happened? Why did we grow up in an area where it says, no, this is, there is the scripture, this is what it means. Do not turn to the right, to the left. It's there in the middle. There it is. You see, when the Christian church had gone through the period of the Acts and there was all that outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all that growth, then uh, they went through all that persecution time and Rome gave them a hard time and people were thrown to the lions and, and all of that. Then the Roman emperor, Constantine, I think, um, said, now all the Roman Empire is going to be Christian, everybody will be Christian, or I'll kill you. Now, look, that is evangelism. <laughs> I think we're doing it wrong. <laughs> and so we, we, what began was the Holy Roman um, Church. And it was like, then they began to have councils, you know, where the, they'd get together and they'd look at the scripture, make an interpretation. Okay, that's it. Bam. Done. And those councils lasted for a long time, what they'd decide. And it became what's called dogma. Dogma meaning there is no negotiation. It's not flexible. There's no other way to look at it. This is how it is. It's dogma. You become dogmatic. And, now, um, and as you know, they, they, they liked the whole you know, uh, boiling people in oil and, and pulling their thumbnails out because it kept people from asking questions. There was a whole period of time called the Dark Ages where questions, goodness me, you weren't even allowed to speak the scriptures aloud in any language, particularly not um, the common language, English or German or any of those. It had, if it was spoken aloud, it had to be spoken in Latin by the priests. Nobody else. And nobody else was allowed to ask questions or do anything. Now, that was a pretty tough time. And we know about the Reformation and how the church broke free from that. And we moved forward and we had all sorts of periods of enlightenment and, and the great awakening and the spiritual outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all of that sort of stuff. But some of that residue has come down that we have, uh, in a, our generation at least, came through a time where Christian culture was still a little bit about dogma. This is how it is. Do not ask questions. And we've now hit a generation where the youngsters are not, they don't understand why we, are, we won't talk. Why won't you talk about these things? These contentious issues, they are issues. Why won't you talk about it? I don't know. But you know what? I haven't come through that time of witch hunts and, and the gospel coming through. And we're here now. You know what? The gospel is not a political campaign. It's not about me standing up here and telling you, well, this is my position and this is what I will do if you vote for me to be your representative for the gospel. You, do, you know, um, you're going to vote for Jesus because uh, these are my stands. These are my positions. I'm on this and this and this and this and this is my position on this issue. Okay, so vote for me. Have we not had enough political grandstanding to last us for a lifetime and we're still going until jolly America make up their mind decide who they're going to vote in. Oh my goodness, will I be glad when that's over? Will I? I don't know. Oh dear. <laughs> that's a contentious issue. Off to the football corner with you. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Um, this is not how Christ asked us to win the lost. Why are we afraid of questions? Why are we afraid of not knowing it all? I'd like you to think that I am the fount of all wisdom and knowledge. I strike you as that sort of person, don't I? That I know everything. 
Oh dear. You know what? Unfortunately and sadly, even for everybody here who's thinking, yes, well, I'm pretty smart. I know just about everything there is to know. Do you know what? The sad fact is no one can possibly know it all. You just can't. Not Richard Dawkins, not Stephen Hawking, the professor who at the moment, they've taken it upon themselves to try to explain the meaning of life and the universe. Are you crazy? Are you mad? Do you think that one person could possibly understand everything there is to know about the entire universe, about all philosophy, about all the mysteries of God? Do you think that one person could really ever know all of that? What do you think God thinks about that? Not even the most educated theological pro professor. Actually, I've had a hack on my notes here. You know how people hack your Facebook? Written in red here, and it's not my handwriting. It says, I think Nick is the smartest person in the universe. <laughs> I don't know, but it's not my handwriting. <laughs> That's what you do. Your notes get hacked if you leave them on the cupboard. All right. <laughs> oh, he says, and the best looking, but it's, you know, I thought that was a very big stretch. Anyway. <laughs> hey. Nobody could possibly know everything. And if you get, you know, if you get to that point where you think, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good and I do know, I do know just about everything. I always say, just have a little look at the night sky and um, it might give you a clue. Just, and, and in fact, I'm going to do that. Let's have a look at the night sky. We've got a video, hopefully, that might work. Um, and I want you just to think about the immensity of the universe. That's out near Uluru. Just think about the immensity of the universe, what's out there and how we are in relation to all of that on the earth. And that didn't just happen by accident because the earth wouldn't exist at all if everything wasn't exactly in order. You've got other galaxies up here. And I mean, the whole thing is quite phenomenal. And I, I used to go out a lot into the night sky, that's clouds. Um, just stare up at it and when you stare up at a night sky out in the country you can't help but think you know how big is God and how small are we and how stupid are we thinking that we know it all let's have a little read of the scripture Isaiah 55 10 my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet still some of us think, no, I know what's right and I've got a position and I'm going to stand on it and I'm going to die before I give that position up. It's a, it's a crook thing. But you know what? I, ha I do have opinions. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not always in the football corner and I'm not always in the angsty corner. Sometimes I do have an opinion and I do have a position. Sometimes I do. And um, I just am, I'm not quite so sure about being quite so dogmatic and fighting, uh, fighting people about it anymore. 
God didn't actually say to us, I want you to make sure that you know everything. And when you know everything, hang tight to it. What he said to us, he wants us to seek him, to seek him, to know him. You know, and I have said this before, truth is not a what. Truth is a who. Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, the truth and the life. If you want to know the truth, then seek him. Seek God. There's the other scripture that says there, glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. This is not about seeking a, a, a whole lot of answers to everything. Because, you know, even, even on the best day, when I get up here and I give a really cracking sermon, which, I, you know, even on the best day, and I'll tell you this, and I'll tell you that, and this is how I understand it, and this is how I've interpreted it, and this is what I think. What is God in heaven doing? He's like looking down and saying, isn't she precious? A little bit of a giggle here and there, because I've completely missed it, probably by a half a mile. But you know what? He loves the fact that I seek him, and that I love him. That's what he's looking for. And this is another thing too, when we're talking about positions, whichever position we choose. If I was to do absolutely everything right and according to the rules, I'm totally upright in my community and I'm good. I'm a good, honest citizen and I don't break any rules, whosever rules they might happen to be, I don't. Is that what saves me? Am I saved because of that? Because it says in Isaiah that my righteousness, the righteousness that all the right acts that I do, it's like filthy rags. You understand. You understand in Romans it says that um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, which is what Jason said this morning. It's not about whether I am doing absolutely everything right. It's about... God's work in me and me knowing and loving him. And that is all. There isn't anything else. So, how are we supposed to worship? We've got all this endless rounds of argument about how a church should look. And, uh, you know, we sit in our enlightened positions and our church is more enlightened than their church over there because... But let's have a look at some of the pictures I've, I've selected here. I've got up here in the, the top right corner... That is, um, you know, Catholic worship often involves prayer at an altar where you might light a candle. We, we might not do that, but does that make that wrong? Does that make the person whose heart is genuinely seeking Christ in that way, does that make them wrong? I don't think so. Then we've got the folks down here in a, um, a, just a, a typical traditional church with the organ up the front. Who likes organ music and hymns? Good. I'm glad to hear it because I do too. Oh, sorry, Geordie. Why haven't we got an organ? Um, then you've got the, the black church over here, the choir and the choir robes. Who's, it, who's up for that? I'm always up for a good choir. Yeah, I think we should do that too. Um, and then up here we've got, you know, the, you know, the true enlightened way. That's how you really should worship if you really love God. I'm being sarcastic, of course. You do understand that. Um, how is worship supposed to look? I don't think it's about that necessarily I think it's about this 
definitely necessary about how we're seeking God in our heart. However, if we light a candle or if we wear a choir robe, it really doesn't make any difference. What makes the difference is what's going on in our heart. I was talking to Robin the other day, having a chat to her, we were having a bit of a giggle, about uh, the days when we were kids at church. Remember Robin? And uh, we were talking about the restrictions and the rules that we had at our church. So, so Robin's, in Robin's church, uh, they weren't allowed to drink alcohol, they weren't allowed to dance, and they had to wear a hat to church. Uh, at Nick's church, when he was a youngster, he couldn't dance, definitely not. And, and the women had to wear a hat to church, but they were allowed to drink alcohol. And in my church, well, we, we, we didn't have to wear a hat. We could dispense with the hat and we could dance, and I danced all the time, but you couldn't drink alcohol. So here we were, the three, three of us Christians growing up at the same period of time, all in different churches, all with different rules. So which one of us is really a Christian? Obviously the one with the microphone. <laughs> Look at these pictures up here. I've, I've put the Amish folk up there because you know what? Amish people, generally speaking, genuinely love God and they genuinely want to serve him and do what is right before him. It's genuine. They believe that. Yet the rest of the Christian world would probably laugh at the, the rules and restrictions they live under. Then you've got the folk up here in the, um, the, in the 1950s uh, suit and tie and lovely Sunday best. I know Christian churches today who think that if you don't go to church look like that, you really are showing that you're not really a Christian. Gosh, there's not many Christians here this morning. <laughs> Is there any? Is there one who's got a tie on? You know that wearing a tie is a Christian thing. <laughs> and then you've got this, this bunch down the bottom. They've got tattoos, for goodness sake. Now, how is that Christian? <laughs> I love you, Geordie, I really do. And Nathan, I love you too. Um, you know, the, uh, this, this group down here, the God Squad, they, they uh, merged in the 1970s out of the, the bikey culture, out of the drug culture. Jesus saved and they were miraculously saved and they did not look like Christians. And there was some, um, you know, a great lot of argument and controversy over these people, that, these bikies that were coming to church with leather jackets and tattoos and earrings and scraggly beards. Oh, gosh, we've got scraggly beards too. Um... <laughs> We are in trouble. You know, you know, what's a Christian supposed to look like? It's not what we look like, it's what's going on in here. However, a tie would be nice. And I think we've been missing the point. How hard is it to give up being right and having a position? You know what? It didn't say in the Bible... We will know that we are his disciples by the things we approve of and the things we disapprove of. And yet sometimes, that's how we seem to think it's going to turn out. It says in the Bible, they will know you are my disciples by your love. By your love. It's difficult. You know, I had a, um, I had a long career in developing my self-righteousness. It started when I was eight. Let me tell you the story. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, when I was born, my mother and father were in the, in the Methodist church. My dad was a su Sunday school superintendent. We went to church every week from a little tiny baby. Uh, went to Sunday school at the Methodist church and it was all good. 
Then when I was around eight, mum and dad went to a, uh, an evangel evangelical tent crusade where they got baptised in the Holy Spirit. Talk about contentious issues. Um, actually, the minister of the Methodist Church at the time was all for it. He was the one that took them. Him and all the congregation, a number of them got baptised in the Holy Spirit and they all became very happy-clappy and it was all lovely. But then that minister, he got moved on and another minister came in and she wasn't a fan of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Not a fan at all. So it wasn't too long before um, the Christian Revival Crusade in South Australia had planted a little house church in the next town across the way. So my mother and father um, used to attend the house church on the Friday night so that we could clap, clap, raise hands and speak in tongues. And um, that was all good. But then they eventually left the Methodist church when it became the Uniting Church and decided, no, we're going to become a part of this. It's going to become a church in this town, which it was. So off I went. And didn't I think I was good? I got baptised in the Holy Spirit when I was eight. And didn't I think I was enlightened and good? I did, you know, because in that church, you, you clapped hands when you sang. And in that church, you stood up and you, and you praised God like this and you took a Bible to church with you. You did. You didn't do that in the Methodist church, I tell you. They just handed out hymn books at the door. But at this church, you took your Bible. Well, my grandparents were still in the Methodist church, so every now and again we would go back to visit the Methodist church. And I used to take my Bible because I thought, I'll show them. I'm more spiritual than they are because I have my Bible with me as I march into church and self-righteously sit down. I'm eight years old, people. How soon does self-righteousness start? My goodness me. It's all my deep, dirty secrets and you're all sitting there laughing. Anybody else? Anybody else? Not a one. You're all so perfect. It's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> Jesus said they will know you are Christians, not by how you dress, not by how you worship, not by if you bring your Bible to church, but by your love. Let's have a read of this scripture in Luke. To, uh, Jesus is talking um, to some Pharisees. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, who in that day, of course, were considered sinners. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that, man, uh, that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good scripture, isn't it? sometimes unless you're being self-righteous <laughs> then it's like ooh, that's not so good you know what when it comes down to it what did Jesus say about inheriting eternal life which position did you have to take no this is what he said when the Pharisees come to him and said what must we do to inherit eternal life Jesus went about and told them the story of the good Samaritan 
And you remember the story, of course, the, the man went up to Jericho, he was beaten by thieves and robbers and left to die by the roadside. And um, one of the Pharisees came by and saw him and goes, oh my goodness, that looks uncomfortable and walked past. And one of the other teachers of the law came by and saw him and um, thought, I'm in a hurry, he better get off to his temple duties and left him by the roadside. And it was the Samaritan who stopped remembering that the Samaritan was from a minority group that was hated in this region. He was a, a minority group that was hated. You talk about racism, they really hated the, uh, the Samaritans. But he was the one who stopped and tended to his wounds and put him on his donkey and took him to the inn and gave him clothes, gave him food and left money for the innkeeper to look after him. Now, when they were asking him um, about that is what Jesus answered them and said, who is my neighbour? When I have to love the Lord my God, and love my neighbour. He said, well, who is my neighbour? And he said, well, this is your neighbour. When you see the ones that are broken and hurting on the side of the road. Now, this is not just a one-off scripture in the Bible. This is not just a one-off thing that's like, oh, just the Good Samaritan story. Let's read a couple of other scriptures because I just want to get really into it here. Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer and say, well, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to eat? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and did clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And, and you know that in that scripture, he also said to the other group, you didn't do all of this. You didn't feed the hungry. You didn't visit me when I was sick. You didn't clothe me. And he said, when did we see you? And he said, truly as you didn't do it to the least of these, you did it to me. And this is when Jesus is talking about eternal life, inheritance. It doesn't stop there. Well, it didn't start there actually. Let's go look at Isaiah 58. It's a long scripture and I'm going to read it all and it won't hurt you. Pay attention everybody. It's all up there on the board. Um, let the scripture speak for itself here for day after day they seek me out they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has forsaken the commands of its God they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them why have we fasted they say and you do not and, and you have not seen it why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you did as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the, the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. I think that scripture speaks for itself, yeah? Doesn't it? You know, God's been speaking to me about this feeding the hungry and the poor and the generosity thing. And, and um, I saw a thing on Facebook, as you do, um, about how this family had decided to be prepared and they'd put a pack in their car of just little, um, you know, emergency uh, non-perishable food items and things like that um, in their car just for in case they saw the hungry or the needy. So I thought, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. So I went around the supermarket with the person who hacked my notes and um, put things in, extra things, because I thought, that's a good idea. And I prepared two little packs. I put one in his car and one in mine. And he laughed at me and thought it was ridiculous. And I wasn't amused that he thought it was ridiculous. But since that time, I haven't seen a hungry person anywhere. <laughs> I keep looking. <laughs> it's very annoying having a pack of food in the back of your car and there's nobody that needs it. Anybody? Is there anybody here that's hungry? Anybody? <laughs> I mean, there's fun, some, some folks in this church sitting here today saying, are you kidding me? You should see where I work. I see the hungry. I see the needy. And look, that is as it is. I mean, we live in the Western world where we are a little bit sanitised, a lot of us, to what really goes on with homelessness um, and, and the poor and the broken and the abused and the people that are in prison and stuff. We are a little bit sanitised. You have to, I think you probably have to really get on, on your bike and really go searching from our context to find it unless you happen to work in that. But... Is that an excuse? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, just to close, I've got just a short video that I hope will work that I want you to watch. And I just want you to see if perhaps you can see the least of these in this video.
The majority of refugees that, that arrive in Greece or arrive in Europe arrive here on this island. So these beaches are where, uh, you know, uh, sometimes 60 to 70 uh, boats will land here per day. Most of them have fled countries of conflict. They left all their belongings. Some of them have left even family members behind. They just, they just flee for their, for their own safety and they, they flee for the, the hope of a better life. I mean I, I mean, I can't even imagine leaving everything I know and coming to a place on a little raft and you have no idea whether you're gonna be welcomed or you're gonna be thrown in prison or you're gonna be, you know, you, you, just, you just have no idea what to expect. A lot of the moms are very visibly afraid to be handed someone else's child is, that's really humbling to like be responsible to, to care for them even for that brief moment. Let's go this nice lady. Just go. Take care of her, please. It was hard to see children coming off soaking wet. Um, yesterday we saw a boat come in with a baby who was just one month old on it. And I just can't imagine a mom who, who gets on a boat like that that's so unsafe with their one-month-old infant and how afraid she must have been that something would happen. Uh, and actually, I was just fearful that, that they're not going to make it because they're going to die of hypothermia before they get anywhere uh, safe. So I think it just uh, epitomizes the desperation that we see in this, uh, in this situation that we find ourselves in. They know about the border crossings. They know about what's happening in Hungary, about getting tear gassed and about getting stopped at a border. They, they know about boats, uh, boats crashing out here. Just, just yesterday, a boat was lost out at sea and people died. You know, almost every day, one of these boats doesn't make it to shore. can tell they're traumatized by what has already been such a long journey that they've been through um, and what will be a really long journey still. I think when they land they're just so glad to be on dry land and safe that the reality of what lies ahead isn't, isn't really registering so I don't, I don't think they realize that they now have several weeks journey trying to get through Europe to their destination uh, and that that journey is not going to be easy. This is Karatepe. Uh, it's one of the refugee transit points that the refugees wait before moving on with their journey. She's four months pregnant, is that right? Four months? Yes. Yeah. And why is she afraid she might be losing the baby? I'm just cleaning the wound. He's, he's trodden on a nail. It's gone quite deep. Uh, the most important thing is that he goes to a pharmacy now and gets a tetanus vaccination. She's just sprained her ankle, probably by walking or maybe when she got out of the boat. Has she felt the baby kick yet? A flutter? Then the baby's okay. We are the first faces that they see when they land. Probably a lot of them have never even met a Christian. When they land on this beach, we're happy that we can be here and be here as part of that of that first step and be here to just show them that there's Christian people that love them. 
As they continue their journey along the way, they'll meet other people from Samaritan's Purse and other countries, and they'll remember us. I've never done anything like this. This is extremely special, what we're doing here. So in conclusion, people, that video always gets me every time. In, conclu in conclusion, it's really not about what position you're going to take and what your opinion is. You know what it's about? It's about doing for the least of these, as Jesus has asked us to do, uh, whoever they might be and whatever they look like and whatever. And I don't know, I'm not, with this community centre over here, I don't know how that's going to unfold. I don't know if that will make it more visible to us, but there might be some people in the church here now who say, hey, you can come and help me. I can show you where they are. But they're around. They are around. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we just thank you so much that you are gracious to us. And that, Father God, even when we get up on our own high horse and uh, think we're pretty good, that, Lord, that you are still gracious to us. And yet, Lord, we just want to, we do want to open our hearts to you and seek you, seek you who are the truth. That, Lord, that you would lead us in that way, that you would help us to connect with you by connecting with the least of these. And that, Lord, that we would give up our, our addiction to being right and just to love you, just to love you and to love others. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. stand at our feet do you know the church was never meant to be a political movement it's meant to be a missional movement we've been given an incredible opportunity as a church and sometimes what happens is churches do become political they get caught up in different opinions and they lose the very heart of God and don't you know Meredith was talking about hunger today and I've got one of those packs in my car I thought she'd put it in there thought maybe she thinks on the way to Bendigo I get hungry and I just got something to eat and we haven't met anybody yet but here's one thing I found in our community there's not really a hunger of the stomach more than there is a hunger of the soul do not misinterpret hunger. Because there's people around you every day that are starving in their soul. Every day we get an opportunity to be able to give somebody love. This week... received a call from a very close mate of mine telling me that he had cancer. The hard thing about that situation is that the same week that he had got diagnosed with cancer, his family left him. He's all alone. Doesn't know how to fend for himself because of different situations. At that moment, I had a choice to make, just to hear his story and try and pray for him or to do something. 
I said to Meredith, I said, look, we need to send him some money. We quickly made that happen. I'm not standing up here to tell you, look how good I am. But I'm here because every day somebody cries out. And we're God's hands, we're his feet, we're his eyes and we're his ears. And I just wonder today, we've got an incredible opportunity coming up in September for you to maybe invite someone that's crying out, that's hungry. Please, let's not become blind. Let's not become deaf to the people around us. Why don't you close your eyes just for a moment and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Maybe someone that God's putting on your heart to invite has a different position. Maybe they have a different position than you have about God and church. But can you look through and past all that and love them because God loves them? Holy Spirit, as we go today, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your goodness and we thank you that, Lord, you restore us, you heal us, you deliver us. We we have been given such, such, great lives. We've been given the prize of heaven. And sometimes we we hold that prize for our own well-being, for our own prosperity. But I pray, Lord, that this house, that this church will be a house, will be a place that the love of God will go beyond the borders of these four walls. Father, break our hearts, open our eyes, Let us see that the harvest is right. Father, we thank you today. We bless you. You've blessed us so we can bless others. Holy Spirit, you've been given to us to empower us to reach the lost. Father, we pray for that today. I thank you for that today. I thank you, God, that the hearts of the people in this house are turned to you. As we go now, I pray, Lord, that we will see the opportunities that you bring our way. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you give Meredith a hand today and just encourage her? You know, that's um, not an easy sermon to to, to speak. It's not an easy sermon to live. I live with her. So...